So it's really important that we minimize electronic device use for as long as possible before bed, and ideally for two to three hours before bed, because then you allow the natural melatonin rhythm to rise and provide that signal of darkness to the brain. And so for as long as possible before sleep, we should be minimizing any light exposure and certainly use of electronic devices. Hello, this is Dr. Deva Nagula. Welcome to From Doctor to Patient, where our goal is to bring you topics of discussion that will educate you on the various healing modalities to help balance the mind, body, and spirit. Hello, and welcome to another episode of From Doctor to Patient. Today, I am pleased to have Stephen Lockley as my guest. Stephen Lockley, PhD, is a neuroscientist in the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders at Brigham and Women's Hospital and an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Sleep Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's also an adjunct professor in the School of Psychological Sciences at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and an affiliated faculty member of the Center for Health and the Global Environment, Harvard School of Public Health. He received his BSc in biology from the University of Manchester, UK in 1992, and a PhD in biological sciences from the University of Surrey, UK in 1997. He joined the faculty of Surrey in 1999 and the faculty at Harvard Medical School in 2003. The problems caused by jet lag cannot be tackled using generic advice, which is oversimplified and can be often counterproductive, making jet lag worse. Each traveler and trip is different and requires a personalized approach, taking your sleep pattern, chronotype, flight plan, and a range of personal preferences into account. Dr. Lockley, with 25 years of research experience in circadian rhythm and sleep, is a specialist in ways to reset the circadian clock, particularly the role of light and melatonin. He has studied the effects of light on the circadian pacemaker extensively, including the role of light, wavelength, time, duration, and pattern. This work has led to development of smart lighting applications designed to improve alertness, safety, and productivity. He was also the first to show that daily melatonin administration could reset the biological clocks of totally blind people and treat non-24-hour sleep-wake disorders, which is a very serious circadian rhythm disorder. These studies inspired the clinical trials that led to the approval of tazamelatin, a melatonin agonist, as the first FDA and EMA-approved drug to treat non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder in the blind. Dr. Lockley has also studied the impact of circadian disruption, long work hours, sleepiness, and sleep disorders on performance and health in occupational groups, including doctors, police, and firefighters, and has led several workplace interventions that have reduced workplace errors and injury. He also advises NASA on how to alleviate jet lag for astronauts traveling the globe and how to reduce the problems associated with shift work at NASA Mission Control. Dr. Lockley has published more than 150 original reports, reviews, chapters, and editorials on circadian rhythms in sleep, and his research is funded by NASA and the NIH, among others. He has won a number of awards, including a Wellcome Trust International Prize Research Traveling Fellowship, the Sleep Research Society Young Investigator Award, the Healthy Sleep Community Award from the National Sleep Foundation, the Harvard Club of Australia Foundation, Harvard Australia Fellowship, the Taylor Technical Talent Award, from the Illuminating Engineering Society of North America, and two awards from NASA, the Group Achievement Award and the Johnson Space Center Director's Innovation Team Award. He co-edited the first textbook on sleep and health, 
called Sleep Health and Society from Ideology to Public Health and recently co-authored Sleep, a very short introduction from Oxford University Press. Stephen, how are you today? Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I'm very good, Steve. It's nice to meet you. Uh, likewise. You know, you're such an expert on some of the things that I have a great passion for. Um, you have such knowledge with circadian physiology, jet lag, and sleep. So I really can't wait to take a deep dive and have a, a nice conversation. But I'd like to uh, first define, you know, what really is circadian physiology and and circadian biology, and if you could just take a few moments to uh, explain that to the listeners. Of course. So the term circadian was termed um, over half a century ago and means rhythms that last about a day. And so a circadian rhythm is a rhythm which takes 24 hours to complete a single cycle. And so some examples of rhythms we know to be circadian are things like your daily sleep-wake pattern, many hormones such as melatonin or cortisol, your temperature pattern is circadian, uh, many aspects of your metabolism have a circadian rhythm, your mood, um, your uh, ability to perform well, all of these are controlled by our circadian clock. And what's quite unique about circadian rhythms is that they are self-generated. And by that I mean we have a clock in the brain that spontaneously generates rhythms without any help from the outside world. And so we know that there's a part of the brain, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, uh, which is a group of about 50,000 cells in the, in the hypothalamus in the brain. And each of these cells is a clock. And these cells can generate their own near 24-hour rhythms and then send signals all over the rest of the brain and body to control the 24-hour uh, rhythms in physiology that we then measure. And so we have this self-sustained clock, this oscillator in the brain. And the point of it is to, to really do two things. We, first of all, need to make sure that all of our internal rhythms are synchronized. And by that, I mean you need to be uh, awake at the right time, uh, to eat at the right time, to sleep at the right time. So all of your internal processes work together. And then the other thing the clock in the brain does is make sure that we interact with the outside world in the right way. And so humans are diurnal, we are day active, so we, we stay awake in the day and, and sleep at night. And so our clock makes sure that we do that so that we're properly synchronized with the outside world. And that's important because you need to be awake at the right time to find food uh, or sleep at the right time to recover. And so our clock helps maintain our internal synchrony, but also make sure that we interact properly with the outside world so we, we do everything at the right time. And really, uh, it, it's so important to our biology that nearly all organisms on Earth have a clock, have a circadian clock. And if you experimentally remove that clock or, or damage the clock by, for example, changing the genes that control the clock, uh, uh, organisms do not do very well. Uh, they are uh, hunted down more quickly or they don't live as long uh, or they're not as efficient at doing what they need to do. And so our circadian 24-hour clock is really fundamental to all aspects of our biology. With our busy life and our schedules, I would imagine we are prone to have a disruption in our circadian rhythm. 
what are the common causes that you see that can disrupt this rhythm? So we evolved this rhythm in a natural world, in a natural environment, and the most powerful environmental signal is the daily light-dark cycle. And so our brain, through this clock, tracks, uh, tracks whether it's night or day, uh, tracks whether it's winter or summer. And so we evolved to be very, uh, very carefully in sync with the, the light-dark cycle. Of course, since the uh, advent of man-made light, our ability to produce light uh, from a source other than the sun, we've now become much more disconnected from that daily solar light-dark cycle. And so our use of uh, electric light sources is one of the major causes of circadian disruption because we override the natural cycle uh, by using electric light to stay up later, for example, when we would normally have gone to sleep, or in an even more extreme case, uh, stay up and work all night if we're a shift worker when the biological clock is telling us to go to sleep. And so light is the most powerful time cue to, to reset or synchronize our clocks, and we can use that in a good way if we time light exposure at the right time. But when we see light exposure at the wrong time, um, that can cause disruption. And, and examples of that are our shift work and jet lag, uh, where we force ourselves to see light at a time that the brain thinks we should be asleep. And so while light is the most important time cue, other things do affect us. So, for example, if we're awake and working at night, uh, we're also eating at night. And that's something that we have not evolved to do. We would uh, normally be eating in the day as a diurnal animal. And so that in itself has other consequences. And so we know that if we get away from that natural 24-hour rhythm, that 24-hour light-dark cycle, uh, then the systems that the clock controls start to become less efficient. And, and we know that there are um, uh, consequences for that in terms of the high risk of chronic diseases if you're a shift worker, for example. And so light is key uh, in all of this. That's really the most important thing. Um, and, and really the clock is expecting us to live on a very regular schedule as close to the natural light-dark cycle as possible. But as we deviate from that, uh, we, we cause problems. It's very interesting that we live in a society where there's so much of technological advances, more so than the last hundred years and than any time of mankind. And yet we see so much disruption due to the technology and our circadian biology. And you'd mentioned previously how light exposure, you know, can benefit and can take away from our natural processes. What type of light are you referring to that has an effect on disruption? And then is there specific light that can actually reset our circadian rhythm? Yeah, so first of all, all light is something that, that we see. And so all of these light signals, even for the clock, go through the eyes. Um, and in fact, there's a different photoreceptor that we use to detect that light that's different from the rods and cones we used to see. Uh, and we can talk a little later about some of the mechanisms of how we detect that light. But we detect the light through the eyes and send a signal to the brain to tell the brain, is it day or night or is it winter or summer? And um, all light will have that effect, but it can vary based on some of the properties of light. And so we know, for example, because this new photoreceptor uh, that's been discovered is most sensitive to short wavelength or blue light, that blue light is the most powerful wavelength of light within uh, white light, within the visible spectrum. 
Uh, blue light will be most effective at resetting our clocks or alerting the brain, keeping us awake. Now, in the daytime, that's a good thing uh, because you want to be alert in the day. You want to be maximally um, alert and, and perform uh, as well as you can. And so blue-enriched white light, bright blue-enriched white light in the day, just like sunlight, um, is very good for us in terms of keeping our clock synchronized and our brain alert. But when we get into the evening and want to start to go to sleep, we don't want that blue-enriched bright light. We want to take away that blue part of the spectrum and have a more red-enriched, red-orange looking light because that will start to help calm the brain down and prepare us for sleep. Now, in the real world, that would happen at dusk in that when the sun goes down, that would be a very strong signal that it's night to the brain. Uh, but of course, we override dusk. Most of us don't go to bed at dusk. We carry on using light. And so if we choose to carry on using blue and rich light, the brain still thinks it's daytime and keeps going with our daytime physiology. And that means stay awake, stay alert, be active, have a high heart rate, have high temperature. Uh, the brain still keeps going with its daytime physiology, and that's why we then can't fall asleep. But if we start to remove those blue wavelengths and have a, a red or orange light, like a firelight or a candlelight, that, that type of light, and dim it down, then the brain starts to realize, well, it's getting close to nighttime and starts to induce the systems that help us fall asleep. And so it's not necessarily that the, the light always has the same effects all the time. It's about creating that day-night contrast. And so we want high-intensity, blue-enriched light in the day, bright days, and then for as much as possible after dusk, dim and blue-depleted or red-enriched light and then, of course, sleeping in darkness because we want to really be in the dark uh, while we're asleep. And so we can use that information to try and optimize our light-dark cycles, even if we don't have natural light. We can use electric light in a good way to enhance the blue and the intensity in the daytime and then bring it down in the evening before bed. And I would imagine that this has some correlation with our internal melatonin production. It does. And so melatonin is the hormone of darkness. Sometimes people refer to it as a sleep hormone, but it isn't really a sleep hormone because rats produce melatonin at night and rats are active at night. They're nocturnal. And so what melatonin does is tell the brain that it's nighttime. And for us, for humans, that means go to sleep. But if you expose your eyes to light uh, when melatonin production starts, and it usually starts two to three hours before you go to bed, then that light suppresses melatonin, and that's part of this signal to the brain that it's still daytime. Because you suppress the hormone melatonin, you take away that signal of night, and the brain still thinks it's day. So any time that you see light, the brain interprets that as being daytime, even if it's the middle of the night. And so we really have to be careful about creating that night-day uh, that, that night cycle, that dark light cycle, so we don't confuse the brain with, with light in the middle of the night, and then it's starting to, um, to, to induce all this daytime physiology, because the only way you would have ever seen light in a natural light-dark cycle is if it was daytime, because you have very low levels of light at night in, with, with moon or starlight. And so by suppressing melatonin, you're telling the brain it's still daytime, um, and that's, again, one of the reasons why we remain alert and find it hard to go to sleep. Will supplementation of oral melatonin counteract this this uh this issue of having 
artificial light depleting our own internal melatonin production? No, no, it won't. And so there isn't really uh, very good evidence that the amount of melatonin is is important for melatonin's internal properties. It's really the duration of melatonin. And so, for example, when we, we change our physiology between a winter and, a, and summer, it's the duration of night length measured by the duration of melatonin, which tells the brain what season it is. And that becomes very important in seasonally breeding animals. And they begin their reproductive cycles based on season, which is based on melatonin duration. The amount doesn't really matter because if you take 100 individuals, there are very wide ranging levels of natural melatonin. Um, and so amount doesn't really seem to, to help. It's really about keeping a consistent schedule, a consistent light dark schedule, which then means a consistent melatonin rhythm, which tells the brain then each and every day uh, when to go to sleep. Um, some people have studied melatonin as a soporific or uh, something to help you fall asleep, but it isn't really very good at that unless you're trying to sleep at the wrong time. And what I mean by that, if you're working a normal day shift and you're trying to sleep at night, melatonin isn't a very good drug to help you fall asleep. But if you're a shift worker trying to sleep in the day, or if you've traveled across many time zones and are trying to sleep in a new time zone, let's say in, in Europe or, or in Asia, then melatonin will help you sleep in the new time zone while your body gradually readjusts to that new time zone. And, and, and it does that by sort of kidding the brain into thinking that it's nighttime when it, when it isn't. But if you're producing your own melatonin at night, uh, adding melatonin to that as, as a pill won't really help with sleep. Now, I... Maybe mistaken, but is there a correlation with external melatonin supplementation with suppression of your internal melatonin production? Again, not really. There's not good evidence that you can alter um, your your own melatonin production very much. Um, what that may do is alter the the number of melatonin receptors on the SCN, and so uh, we know that the clock has melatonin receptors. And that's thought to help uh, an internal feedback um, to help maintain that local time, to maintain that internal time properly. Um, and it may be that if you take lots of external melatonin, you may downregulate your melatonin receptors and then make you a little less sensitive to your own melatonin. But, but again, there's not hugely uh, convincing evidence that you can have uh, any real impact of doing that. Um, it really is about that duration of melatonin rather than the amount, uh, and you wouldn't affect that as much mm-hmm. with, with that type of an effect. You were involved with some studies where melatonin administration helped reset the biological clocks of totally blind people. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, all of the effects of light uh, to the clock go through the eyes. And so if you are unfortunate enough to not have eyes or are totally blind and your eyes can't detect the light, then the internal clock in the brain has no way to synchronize with the outside world. That doesn't mean that there's no rhythm. What it means is that the internal rhythm runs on its own time, on its own day length. And all of us have our our own slightly different internal clock. Um, It ranges from around 23 and a half hours to around 25 hours with an average of around 24.2 hours, around 24 hours and 12 minutes. 
And so all of us have a slightly different clock. And in fact, that clock determines whether we're a morning or an evening type, uh, with people with quicker clocks tending to be more morning type and people with slower clocks tending to be more evening type. And so your internal clock determines where you line up in the world, if you like, relative to the light-dark cycle. Um, and then each and every day, light resets that clock if you have eyes that can detect light. But if you don't have, have eyes, you're unable to reset and the clock then runs on its own time. So if you're someone with an internal clock that is, say, 24 and a half hours, 24.5, your brain would try to send you to sleep half an hour later every day because that's the timing of the internal clock. So it would, say, make you want to go to sleep at 10 o'clock tonight, 10.30 tomorrow, 11 o'clock the night after. And that's fine for a few days. But of course, after 24 days, your body clock would be telling you to go to sleep at 10 a.m. in the morning, then 10.30 a.m., then 11 a.m. and so on. And so blind people who can't entrain their clocks, and, and these are usually people with total blindness, uh, often develop a disorder called non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder, meaning that their internal clocks can't synchronize to the 24-hour day, and they run on a non-24-hour day length. And that can be really very debilitating because uh, while it is fine for a few days to, to manage with that type of, of change, it continues for life. Um, and you go round and round the clock, um, and, and that can be really problematic. Now, if you're someone with a, a long clock, a, a long period clock, um, you may be able to manage it better than someone with a shorter period. And, and let me give you an example of that. If your clock is running at 24.5 hours, that it takes 48 days to go all the way around the 24-hour clock. And so if that was the case, 48 days, 49 days is about seven weeks. And so you might have three or four weeks of bad sleep then three or four weeks of good sleep then bad sleep then good sleep then bad sleep as you go round and round the clock. And that would be bad for those three or four weeks of bad sleep, but it would go away again uh, and, and then it would come back. But if you're someone who has a clock that's 24.1, it takes eight months to go all the way around the clock. And that may be more difficult to deal with because it would mean you would have maybe three or four months of really bad sleep when you're out of phase with, with the outside world and then three or four months of good sleep. But for those three or four months of bad sleep, you know, that would be really quite difficult to, to deal with. And so your internal clock determines how long that cycle takes and can determine the severity of the problem. Now, because light can't reset the clock, what else can we use? And I mentioned before that there are melatonin receptors on the SCN, on the clock. And so uh, back in 1988, uh, the professor who I trained with, a woman called Professor Josephine Arendt, was the first person to give melatonin to a blind person to try and mimic the, the 24-hour clock that was missing by light in order to try and replace the time cube. And, and she gave melatonin to a blind man uh, every day at the same time uh, for a number of weeks and was able to synchronize his sleep-wake cycle uh, and really treat his disorder. Now, at that point, we didn't know that it reset the clock. And in, and in fact, later studies in that individual showed that it didn't. Uh, but in the year 2000, we were the, the first group to show that you could indeed reset the clock itself, not just the sleep, uh, by giving daily melatonin at the same time every day. And that's the important part. It's about providing a 24-hour time cue and giving it at the same clock time every day 
uh, to replace the light that is lacking. And then more recently, uh, I was uh, the principal investigator of a clinical trial for a melatonin agonist called Tazimeltion. Uh, the trade name is Hetlios. And that is a melatonin-like drug uh, that we tested in a clinical trial that was then approved by the FDA to treat non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder in the blind. And so it works very similarly to melatonin. It has uh, the same sort of um, uh, binding to melatonin receptors, uh, but it, of course, went through all the safety trials and all the requirements of, a, of an FDA trial before approval. Um, and so we know that melatonin, or uh, tazimeltion in this case, can uh, reset the clock and bring everything back into line as long as you keep taking the, the, the melatonin or tazimeltion. As soon as you stop taking it, you go back to having that non-24 or free-running cycle. And so it essentially replaces light in providing a substitute. Uh, substitute time cue. Does this medicine have any effect on people who are not totally blind? And if so, is it does it have any utility on people who are shift workers or have sleep disorders? You know, in any any of those occupational groups that may be suffering from regular sleep wake cycles. So melatonin has been shown for many years to be able to reset the clock in sighted people. Uh, you have to be careful about the light-dark exposure because you could undo the benefits of the melatonin if you give light at the wrong time. But certainly in controlled laboratory experiments, you can shift the clock with melatonin and, and help people sleep at the wrong time, as I said earlier. So if you're a shift worker trying to sleep in the day, melatonin can be useful uh, to helping you sleep. If you're trying to reset yourself to a new time zone, melatonin is helpful at resetting the clock in that way. So if you have a circadian rhythm disorder, then melatonin can be used to help reset uh, your rhythms back to normal. And so other examples of that would be something like delayed sleep phase uh, disorder, or it's called delayed sleep-wake rhythm disorder now. But if your, your rhythms are set too late and you can't fall asleep until very late in the night, uh, melatonin can help shift you earlier. Uh, and if you're someone who has too advanced a sleep pattern, uh, melatonin could be used to shift you later. So it can be used to reset the clock in circadian disorders. If, though, you don't have a circadian problem, if you have uh, a sleep disorder which is not related to the clock, then melatonin is, is not really useful. Um, and so if you have insomnia, uh, but uh, not a circadian problem, then melatonin hasn't really been shown to be that effective. Mm, I see. Hey, Dr. Diva here. Thank you to all my listeners who supported my book and helped to make it a huge success. You all have helped us hit number one in Barnes & Noble, number one in oncology, cancer, healing, and medical ebooks, and number 21 in all of the Kindle store. You've also helped us hit number three on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. If you haven't received your copy, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or booksatmillion.com. Visit from doctortopatient.com to become part of our growing community of health and wellness aficionados and to learn more. If you like our book and podcast, please go to amazon.com to write a five-star review and go to Apple Podcasts to also write a five-star review on this podcast or any of our episodes that you've enjoyed. We need reviews to attract and secure top-notch guests for this show. Thank you so much for your support.
What about those who are suffering from jet lag? I mean, there's a lot of biohackers that are out there that claim to have the secret sauce, if you will, on curing or, or alleviating uh, jet lag. And some of these include devices, diet changes, hydration, the use of melatonin and other medicines. What's your opinion on that? And, and do you find it effective and, or do you have your own methodology to alleviate jet lag? So the, the short answer to the, the last part is yes, I do have my own methodology and in fact have an app um, which uh, allows people to uh, help reset their clocks using light and melatonin. Um, and so the basis of any jet lag solution has to be, first of all, light uh, and dark. As I said before, it is really only light dark that, that resets our clocks in, in the real world. And it's in fact the disruption of light and dark that causes jet lag or, or shift work. It's that we force ourselves into a light dark cycle that our, our body clocks can't keep up with. That's why we get uh, jet lag or, or shift work problems. And so you have to first of all time light and dark properly. And there are, are ways to do that. And it's governed by a, uh, a function called a phase response curve. And a phase response curve is the description of the effect of light in terms of what direction it will shift you uh, and in terms of how much it will shift you. And just as a, a general rule of thumb, if you see light late in, into the evening and into the night, if you see light late and sleep later, then your clock will shift later. If you see light early and shift your sleep early in the, in the morning, you'll shift your clock earlier. So that's a simplified summary of, of what a phase response curve is but they're the general principles you start to use and so by timing light properly to shift you in the right direction and avoiding light when it would shift you in the wrong direction then you can start to speed up the, the resetting of, of the clock the second uh, component of, of that would, would then be melatonin uh, as i explained earlier you can reset the clock with melatonin if you're sleeping at the wrong time and so taking melatonin at the right time to help shift you is, is also helpful. Um, and, and so really you have to, 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 to deal with melatonin, uh, to deal with shift work and jet lag, you really need to reset the clock. And the only things that we know reset the clock are light and melatonin and its, and its agonists. The other, some of the other solutions you mentioned uh, don't really have an effect on the clock itself. And so while there were some animal experiments looking at diet or, or looking at uh, fasting uh, for resetting clocks in mice, uh, there are no real data in humans to show that that would be effective. Um, uh, and then it's quite complicated to examine because we need to start looking at uh, effects of fasting on, on the clock in the brain versus clocks throughout the body. And, and we have clocks in all of our organs uh, as well as our brain. And so the effect of, of restricted feeding or of meal times or of fasting is really not very clear yet in humans. Um, it's only really been done in, uh, in animal studies. Hydration, yes, of course, that would be a good thing just for, for general health, but there's no evidence that hydration affects the clock in terms of its resetting capability. Uh, and then there are other things people have, have, have looked at, like timed exercise, which is, which is I'm afraid, quite a weak time. Q uh, or acupressure and again there's no evidence that that would shift the clock so really in order to to correct circadian disorders of any type light dark cycles are the first port of call and then 
uh, melatonin and its agonists uh, next. And with melatonin, I mean, what kind of a dose are you advocating for this resetting? And because there is so much literature about the varying doses, there's people that advocate high doses and medium doses, all for different functionality. High doses have, have been shown to reduce cancer cells, you know, and moderate doses have some efficacy in reduction in inflammation. And, and light doses are sufficient to reset the clock. So what's the dose that you would advocate for resetting the clock? Right. So, so remember, you know, when we're taking something like melatonin, we're taking it at much, much higher levels than the naturally occurring uh, amounts that we produce. And so really any melatonin you take is at a pharmacological level. And so the, the cells, uh, the receptors probably don't see much difference between those doses because you're likely to saturate the receptors with any of the doses we would take um, uh, artificially. And so higher doesn't necessarily mean better because uh, you may have already saturated the receptors with a lower dose. So in terms of of, uh, phase shifting studies where people have looked at shifting the clock, they've tended to be done between either uh, somewhere between half a milligram and five milligrams. And and so you are probably going to get uh, most of the effects uh, on the lower side with a one uh, milligram dose or a three milligram dose, which is a compromise between, um, you know, sort of getting the best bang for your buck in terms of the dose uh, and keeping the dose as low as possible. And so a, a one or a three milligram dose, for example, would be fine. What's important, though, to realize, uh, certainly in the US, is that melatonin is not really regulated. It is classified as a food supplement. And so when you go to a health store or a pharmacy and buy melatonin off the shelf, you've really no idea what's in it. It's not regulated uh, very carefully and is often sold with other things like uh, valerian or St. John's wort or or vitamin B12 or other supplements. And we've no idea uh, of the interactions between melatonin and these other substances. And so um, I, I can't I'm not a physician, I'm a a PhD, so I I can't recommend uh, clinical therapies. But if people are taking it themselves uh, without going through a doctor, then you would want to choose a preparation that only has melatonin and nothing else, because we don't know what the interactions are. Um, People do get side effects with melatonin. Um, Headaches are are a side effect, which is often dose-related. Some people get nausea, some people get a sort of a hangover feeling. Um, and of course, as with anything, people can have allergic reactions. And so you should never take melatonin for the first time on a plane. For example, you would want to test melatonin uh, at home before you travel, uh, just in case you, ha- you happen to have a, an allergic reaction to it. And there are groups of people who, who really shouldn't take melatonin. So uh, the, there have been reports that migraine sufferers uh, can have a, a, a poor response to melatonin. Uh, people with a primary psychiatric disorder uh, we don't recommend uh, pregnant or lactating women uh, wouldn't necessarily take melatonin. And so, you know, there are some groups that, that you might want to consider um, uh, not using it. There's also an increasing use of melatonin in children. And again, I would be very cautious about that because in animal models, melatonin does interact with reproductive development. And so we don't really know what happens if uh, prepubertal children uh, take melatonin extensively in, in terms of what happens to their pubertal development. And so um, it's not really something I would recommend regularly uh, for children either. So uh, it is a hormone. We naturally produce it. it it's, you know, it, it's a real 
product that, that has effects on us, uh, but it isn't something that you should really take lightly. Um, and really, you should be taking it uh, under the direction of a physician. Well, that's really good information. And there's also various formulations of melatonin. There's an extended release formulation, there's sublingual, and there's just a regular oral dosing. Does it matter which of these formulations for efficacy or are they all kind of the same? Um, not really. There have not been very many direct studies testing the clinical uh, application of, of those. The extended release versions are proposed to be more helpful to sleep, to help you sustain sleep longer by providing that signal for longer. But again, what happens at a receptor level, we, we don't really know. Um, the faster release preparations are probably uh, more of a discrete signal to the clock. So if you're trying to reset the clock uh, quickly, for example, with jet lag, then a, a fast release preparation might be more discrete time cue uh, in terms of trying to help reset the clock. Um, the, the, the way of taking it, whether it's sublingual or oral, or you can even get melatonin patches and so on and so forth, uh, none of them really probably make much difference. The bioavailability of melatonin is, is really not that high. Uh, but again, all of these levels are pharmacological, uh, way beyond what we would produce naturally. And so the, the body and brain sees, would see many of these doses as, uh, as very high. Hmm. Okay. You were mentioning earlier about an app that you have. Was I mistaken? No, no, I did say that. I just uh, didn't give you the name of the app um, because uh, I have to be careful of conflicts of interest <laughs> declarations. <laughs> Um, so I, I do have a commercial interest in the app, and so uh, I won't I won't say its name, um, but uh, people can find information around a range of different products uh, that try and help shift the clock. Got it. And in general, I mean, for people who are truly struggling to sleep and stay asleep, aside from your shift workers or people who have a disruption in their circadian rhythms, what do you suggest from a uh, research perspective and from your own clinical experience? So I think the first thing for, for any sleep problem, and I think the first thing that a sleep physician would, would address with the patient is, is sleep hygiene, is your, your general day-to-day -day habits. And so many sleep problems are caused by things that we do to ourselves, first of all, rather than um, a, you know, a, a real physiological disorder. And so something that people can, can try is to think about things that affect their sleep and, and try and change those. So we talked about light earlier. And so light is a stimulant. And if you see that light before you go to bed, it's going to take longer for you to fall asleep. And in fact, you're going to have less quality deep sleep. And so uh, when we think about light exposure in the evening, what are we thinking of? Well, nowadays it's electronic devices. And those electronic devices pump out a lot of blue light and the light is very close to the eyes. So it's a very high intensity light that hits your eyes, even compared to a TV that might be, you know, eight or 10 feet across a room. And so it's really important that we minimize electronic device use for as long as possible before bed. And ideally for two to three hours before bed, because then you allow the natural melatonin rhythm to rise and provide that signal of darkness to the brain. And so for as long as possible before sleep, we should be minimizing any light exposure and certainly use of electronic devices. And so that means uh, dim light, uh, buy a light bulb that, that is designed to help, be, you know, to help be sleepy, so it'll have a red-orange color. There are lots of companies that produce uh, that sleep-promoting light. Uh, and so use that. Just have one lamp on in the, 
in the lounge, uh, sit as far away from the TV as you can, and then don't take your phone or, lap or laptop or tablet or TV to bed and give yourself that time in that dim light to calm the brain and prepare yourself for sleep. And so light is, is first and foremost key. Regularity is key. And so as I mentioned, the circadian system has evolved to really reset itself to the, the daily light-dark cycle, and that doesn't change very much day to day. It's only going to change by a few minutes a day. Um, and so keeping a stable sleep-wake cycle, which then for, therefore means a stable light-dark cycle, because we're asleep in the dark, essentially. So stable sleep-wake, doing the same thing every day, uh, and even thinking about keeping more regular meal times, keeping more regular exercise schedule. All of these things will help to reinforce your circadian synchronization uh, of sleep and, and help the clock reset itself to your more natural rhythm. But it isn't just about the circadian system. Um, there's another control of sleep uh, called uh, the homeostatic regulation of sleep, or, or sometimes called process S, uh, to go with process C for circadian. And uh, process S uh, tells the brain really how long you've been awake and how long you've been asleep. And so the more time you spend awake, the tidier you become. And then the more time you spend asleep, the more alert you become. But we can interfere with that. And so light interferes with that because the light is a stimulant. But if you're using caffeine, for example, caffeine will also uh, be, a, be a stimulant and keep you awake longer, pushing our sleep later making it harder to fall asleep and stay asleep. And so caffeine is a very powerful drug. Uh, we, we overuse it in society. It really props up uh, much of what we do. Um, but uh, it, it's a cause often of many sleep disorders. And so really stopping caffeine uh, after lunch um, is advisable. Um, and then really minimizing caffeine uh, even in the morning uh, it would, again, be advisable. And if you're trying to use it to help stay awake at work or as a shift worker, uh, don't use caffeine on your days off so that it then has a bigger impact on you when you need it, for example, to stay awake at work. And so regular schedules, regular light-dark exposure, light control, caffeine control, and then other good practices. So doing something relaxing before you go to sleep. Uh, that can be reading a book uh, in a dim light, a real book, not, a, not an e-book. Um, doing some relaxation exercises, uh, yoga, meditation have both been shown to be effective at helping people sleep. Uh, even a warm shower can, can help you because then you're able to lose heat, which is a key component of falling asleep. And so um, having a relaxing ritual before bed is often thought to be, to be good as well. So that's advice for, for people who don't have a formal disorder but want to uh, improve their sleep. Um, but some of those same principles apply uh, if you have a sleep disorder. And so if you assist to see a sleep physician um, and uh, complained of insomnia, those would be some of the things the doctor would look at. Uh, and there are, in fact, some uh, quite good online tools now to help you manage your, your behavior. Um, it's called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, CBTI. And some of those tools are quite effective at helping you manage behavior and getting things regular. Uh, and getting your sleep back on track. And and lastly, I'm just curious because there's so much talk about optimizing your sleep through devices and through manipulation of the ambient temperature. 
you know, what's your thoughts on on those types of things like technology specifically like utilization of like blue light blocking glasses and uh, there's also technologies that can modulate your temperature you know and do those have any impact positively or are they all just gimmicks no they're, they're not gimmicks most of them are based in in some degree of science and so if we think first of all say blue blocking glasses um, it's true, as I've told you earlier, that, that blue light is most effective at suppressing melatonin and alerting the brain. And so if you block the blue light in the evening, you're helping to block those negative effects of light. Where they fall short slightly is that it isn't just blue light that affects uh, the brain. All wavelengths of light affect us. It's just that blue is uh, the, the, the most effective of all, all those wavelengths. So if you only block blue light, you're still getting effects from other wavelengths. And so, yes, the blue blocking glasses will help to some extent, but it's not going to be the same as darkness. It's not going to be the same as, as very dim light. Um, there's also software you can put on your computer um, that will help dim and redden the screen in the evening, but that's still not the same as darkness. And so those types of devices will do something, but it's not going to completely uh, deal with the, with the issue. When it comes to temperature, temperature is a very important part of sleep regulation. You can't fall asleep without losing heat. And so when you measure someone's temperature as they fall asleep, they have a very steep decline in their core temperature, uh, and you need to be able to do that to fall asleep. And so if you're too hot or too cold, then you will find it re really difficult to fall asleep because you can't lose heat. And so that's why uh, grandma's bed socks uh, and a nightcap um, are a good idea in the winter because you need to be warm enough in your core to be able to lose heat uh, at your periphery in order to fall asleep. Similarly, in the summer, if you're too hot uh, and there's no gradient to lose heat in the room, uh, then you find it hard to sleep in the summer. And so having a room temperature, which is cooler, will help you lose heat and help you fall asleep. So these products are often based in, in, in reasonable science um, but they sometimes uh, don't don't go quite as far as as you would want, um, or, or don't really uh, don't treat the, the whole problem um, uh, on their own. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and and that's that's the bottom line is we have to take things from a holistic perspective and not just prescribe these band aids that are often used to try to alleviate sleep disorders. So um, you have to take everything into consideration when not only diagnosing, but uh, treating a sleep disorder. So thank you very much. I appreciate this very, very awesome conversation about circadian rhythms and, and sleep. For our listeners, if they want to find out more about you, uh, what's the best way of them to uh, locate you on, on the net? Yep. So first of all, there's a, a very good sleep health education site that, that we've developed at Harvard Medical School. Uh, which is www.understandingsleep, all one word, understandingsleep.org. And that's a free website. It has lots of great information from many of the faculty here at Harvard on general sleep and sleep disorders. Uh, and so that would be a great source for people to go and find out more. Uh, if I'm allowed to advertise a little bit, uh, sure. I wrote a book uh, a few years ago called Sleep, A Very Short Introduction, uh, which is the bargain price of 11.95. Um, and I get 40 cents a book. There's my conflict of interest. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's available uh, on Amazon. And that's a short, uh, short introduction, as it says, which covers a lot of different topics 
um, that people might find interesting. You can sort of dip in and out of, of those. Um, and then if you search for me, uh, at the Harvard site, you'll, you'll be able to find a page with, uh, with, with my links. And so, um, there's, uh, there's a lot of good resources out there for sleep. And, and I would say, as you were saying earlier, you know, taking a holistic approach is, is, is exactly right. But changing sleep is like changing any behavior. You're not just going to get all the benefits in one night. If, if you tonight go to bed early, put your bed socks on, wear your, your blue blocking glasses, it's, it's not going to magically change everything in a single night. Just like uh, a new nutrition regime for dieting, just like a new exercise regime, it takes time to to redevelop a new sleep regime. And so if you change your behavior, change your sleep environment, do these things that we've talked about today, it will take you some weeks before you start to, to notice that difference. But as the clock starts to adjust itself and puts your sleep in, in the right part of the day for your clock, and then you start to feel more alert in the day and start to have more energy and start to feel the benefits, then like any of these behavior changes that will reinforce what you're doing and and help and so don't expect anything to work overnight uh, in terms of, of sleep uh, but if you work at it and, and put the right behaviors in place you'll feel the benefit and then continue to get the benefits fantastic last thoughts i appreciate it dr lockley and thanks again it was great to have you on the show and appreciate you taking the time to be with us today thanks very much